Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, here on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and now at 101.9 in Manchester, New Hampshire. Welcome to 2022. We are brought to you by the Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, New Hampshire. Two great venues, great shows. Sign up. Visit the website, ccanh.com. And if you're listening by podcast, please subscribe to our podcasts. We're very pleased to welcome to open 2022 with our special friend and uh, often guest, Kevin Landrigan, veteran journalist, uh, writing for the unionleader.com, the guy who knows what's going on in politics and issues around New Hampshire. Kevin, welcome to 2022. Happy New Year. <laughs> a good one, a safe one. Yeah. Yeah. How was, how was your New Year's celebration, your New Year's Eve? It was great. Yeah. We got together with friends in Nashville and had a nice, quiet, but enjoyable time. Oh man, that's that's good. I mean, you know, people around people around the country were modifying their New Year's celebrations, I think, given given what's Absolutely. been going on. You know, everybody's everybody yep. is taking a different different tack. The the great ball drop in Times Square was with reduced crowds and airlines yep. were snarled. And you know, so this today I wanted to sort of go back and uh, look at some of what happened in 2021 and look ahead to what's going on in 2022. It's always, a, it's, that's always interesting to try to pick what, what's really interesting and, or at least caught, caught our eyes. The, the big news in 2021 continued to be COVID. The year began with a rollout of COVID-19 vaccinations, and everybody had hopes that this would be an end to the pandemic, but it's ending with some of the highest coronavirus surge numbers since New Hampshire identified its first patient in March of 2020. The New Hampshire's healthcare system is shaken. The school systems are in disarray. Parents are worried. Legislators are filing all all kinds of all kinds of bills. W- would you say that that COVID was the dominant story of 2021? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And you're right, Paul. I think when when we had the vaccine rollout, which was really quite successful and and done in in real time and pretty quickly for most of the population, I think we all thought not so much the story be in the rearview mirror, but rather it would not be as dominant as it continued to be. And I think I don't think even the healthcare experts fully appreciated the how more dangerous and fatal uh, the Delta variant would become and and more contagious as well. So when you had even across the country, you know, nearly 40 percent of the people not vaccinated at all and an even more contagious variant out there that was going to that was even more serious medically for people than it was kind of inevitable. This this would come back to, to bite us as it as it obviously did. And what I think what was most concerning about COVID remaining dominant was it really prevented the economy from fully recovering, right? I mean, you saw it here in New Hampshire where we were pretty well poised, I think, to um, come out of the pandemic economically in really good shape. Uh, Our unemployment rate was low. Our 
We had a workforce shortage. We had such full employment out there, yet COVID still held uh, business back. There isn't any question. So many businesses were adversely impacted by whether it was illness of their workforce or having to restrict their access uh, to the public if they were in retail. And even in manufacturing, we saw, of course, with the supply chain problems, they had their own restriction on our kind of economic vitality, right? Yeah. You know, and and I think a particular concern has been the stress on the healthcare system and healthcare workers, yeah. the, the frontline healthcare workers sure. are, are just burned out. Doctors, nurses burned out with this crisis of the mostly unvaccinated because the the statistics continue to show that unvaccinated people are, are the vast majority, something like 90 or 95 percent of people who are ending up in hospital are people who haven't been vaccinated. So along along with the the story of COVID and the and the and the disease itself and the Delta variant and now dealing with the Omicron variant has been the the challenges to a public health system from uh, people with it seems uh, ideological or political views and and this is not everybody who won't wear a mask or or doesn't want to get vaccinated but a huge number of people who are resistant to the vac to vaccinating and masking have been have uh, seem seemingly taken it up as a as a political issue and it, while it may be a political issue for them for our healthcare system and for all of us who frankly often whose tax dollars go to support the healthcare system in in many ways it's a real it's it's just it's a mind twist to figure out okay we've got a public health care emergency this is not political people it's about your health the health of your neighbors the health of your family but it's it's causing tremendous stress we 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 had a shortage of nurses to begin with and now our nurses are burned out our doctors are are at their at their wits end hospitals needed national guard help in new hampshire no, absolutely you know, I mean, sure. that, no, absolutely. The, and the, and the, the, the strain on the healthcare system really is most chronic, if you will, for people who don't have COVID. Right. Yeah. And um, in full disclosure here today, I, as we speak, I'm in the parking lot of Concord hospital. I brought my wife here to do some routine blood work right at the lab at Concord hospital. Well, the line's out the door. We literally waited. We came here around eight 30 in the morning we waited almost an hour and a half to get her checked in. And now it's going to probably be another hour before she, her name's even called to be, to get blood work. Why is that the case? Because the lab doesn't have the workforce. So right now, for example, in Concord, there are four labs that take blood. There's Panacook, Horseshoe Pond, Epsom, and Concord Hospital. Only one can be open and only one for from the hours of 6 a.m. to 3.30 in the afternoon, and only Monday through Friday, no weekends. So that's why you have this here. This, like, they were obviously closed for the New Year's holiday as well. So you show up on Monday after New Year's, and, you know, there's almost 100 people waiting to get blood work done. And yeah. that's just one example of how the system, as I say, if you 
if you're hospitalized with COVID, yeah, you're in rough shape. But if you're trying to just get routine health care done, it's the maze is incredible. And the staff yeah. are, as you say, just completely overwhelmed, which is that's I think the biggest concern a lot of people in the healthcare field have right now is that this winter surge is essentially going to repeat what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, which is a lot of people not getting preventive or just routine health care done. And as a result, conditions are not going to be diagnosed. You know, right. people right. are going to get sicker right. at home because they're not going to their appointments because they can't get an appointment for a month and a half, you know, or get a physical yep. for two months or whatever. So right. when we come out the other end of this, we could have some even worse healthcare outcomes. Yeah. You know, and some, some, you know, some of the, no, some of the numbers are telling us that we've also during this challenging time seen a surge in uh, issues around opioids, which were a crisis to yep. begin with. Yes. But now that seems to have exacerbated, as you would expect, because there have been numerous articles talking about the stress that everybody's under. There's a, there is an, there is a sort of the base level of societal and cultural stress in 2021 yeah. reached a new level, it seemed to me, where everybody is on guard, on alert, all the time. There was an article the other day in the New York Times about sort of the rise of anger in consumer-facing yes. Right, and you can, and you can see that, point. right? I mean, just yeah. anecdot anecdotally, you can see that as you, you shop in stores or what have you, people are just more on edge, more stressed out, less happy, it appears, you know, and it's all a function of what you were talking about. I mean, the mental health you know, casualties of this pandemic are going to be enormous. They really yeah. are. And we don't, I don't think we even can fully appreciate how big they are because so many of them, as you know, people who suffer from mental illness, so much of it is they suffer in silence. And it isn't until there's a real crisis in their lives that you even realize what they've been going through, you yeah. know. Um, oh, man. Well, let, let's move on. So in, in, mm -hmm. poli in politics... Oh, one of the big stories in 2021 was Governor Chris Sununu deciding that he was going to run for a fourth term as governor of New Hampshire and not, as many folks expected, and not stand as a candidate for the United States Senate in Senator Hassan's reelection effort. And that was that was that was huge national news. And it, it left a lot of people in politics scratching their heads. What 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 do you think about that? What did you make of it? And where does that put Senator Hassan and this pivotal race for the United States Senate in New Hampshire? Yeah, it certainly it was the most surprising non-story, as I like to call it, of mm -hmm. uh, not of just of 2021, but maybe of the last decade, right? I mean, so many people were expecting this kind of clash of the titans between the two of them. And I think I think it didn't come to pass for a couple of reasons. I do think he's I do think he started out with all the speculation thinking, you know, Washington's probably not for me and ended ended there once he thought the more and more he thought about it, which is to say Washington is so divided, it is so polarized. I think he even understood even if I run for the Senate and I were to defeat 
and Republicans were to take control of the Senate, they're not going to get 60 votes. So Republicans will run the Senate, but they're not going to be able to accomplish much more than the Democrats could accomplish, right, on Capitol Hill when it comes to the big issues and the big problems facing this country. And meanwhile, there was still the pandemic to overcome, and that's going to certainly remain with us. And and other challenges he saw with a fourth term as governor. I I do think as well that as he thought about it, you know, to put his political hat on, I think he came to understand in all seriousness, this was not going to be a layup for him to defeat Senator Hassan. Even in a year in which Republicans, you would presume, kind of have more momentum. And one of the reasons is the pandemic. Even if you looked at all the polling, particularly over the last month before he made his decision in early November, every poll Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, independent, showed about 10% of the voters couldn't make up their mind between Hassan and Sununu, which really, if you think about it, is kind of surprising, right? They both are at 100% name recognition. You know, they both are pretty well-defined personalities. So why are 10% not making up their mind? And I surmise that that 10% was not going to go to Sununu. And a lot of that 10% is essentially the, the vaccine hesitant. Okay, the population of people and not just Republicans, some of them are independents and some are Democrats as well, who aren't happy with how he's kind of managed this pandemic. Okay, and many of them, frankly, at the end of the day, also wouldn't vote for Senator Hassan. Right. Either because they think she's too liberal or they might disagree with her on this issue or that. And that becomes then that turns what looks like a very close race into more than a nail biter, right? Because if all 10% of those people, or most of them, don't vote for him, and even if they don't vote for her, that's, like I said, then they both really would struggle to get to 50%, right? And then it really becomes a turnout race, right? And and if, if you're running in a Senate race, and there's an open race for governor, you know, that would give the Democrats an opportunity to really build a turnout behind a new fresh face, you know, running for an open seat in the corner office that could make the race even closer. Right. Yeah. So I, I do think that factored in as well. But meanwhile, he felt as if, you know, if I run for election in a year where Republicans have the momentum, it's not like I'm going to have an easy time of it necessarily, but it's 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 a far safer course for him to take. You know, now what does this mean for Senator Hassan? It means it's more likely she wins a second term. It's not by any means a given, but Republicans are really challenged now, first to find the best candidate and second to to avoid, you know, a knockdown drag out primary that could make whoever wins, you know, a wounded challenger. You know, right. certainly as, sure. as we saw certainly even as we saw in twenty twenty, the race became so much easier for Gene Shaheen after a prime in which, you know, Corky Mesner and, you know, Don Baldick just sort of lobbed grenades at one another, right? right for right, a right. number of months and they couldn't really get any traction on their own. That's, I, that's really what 
that's really the concern here for Republicans now. Is that, right, and um, we've already we've already seen some of that kind of jockeying and infighting and yep. and yep. and false starts and various efforts by a number of the potential Republican candidates to to uh, sort of outdo, outmaneuver, or or figure out what to do with an with a with an effort at one point to bring everybody together and kind of try to make a backroom deal about who would run. So it's right. it it, right. it is it, it is right. going to be tougher for the Republicans. So here's here's just here's a here's a here's an off the wall. Well, not not so off the wall brainstorm, which is prompted by some some comments made by our friend Alicia Preston, who is part of the panel, weekly panel on balance of power here on KXL with, with Matt Robeson and me. And her speculation yeah. is that the governor figured, hey, you know, 2024 is coming and the Republicans could be yeah. looking for a presidential candidate who has a record of accomplishment and popularity. And it's easier to be a presidential candidate as a governor because you can point to all the governing you did instead of as just one of the, those dysfunctional senators. And maybe if I want to take a look at 2024, I, I, I'm much better off as having been a, a four-term elected elected governor from the first in the nation primary state. And maybe that has figured into the governor's calculations. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of fascinating speculation. And I don't think it's completely off the wall. Okay. I mean, I've had a number of conversations with this guy. I've had a number of conversations with this governor who talked a lot about, you know, the travels he did while he's trying to make up his mind about whether to run or not. And he'd go to these events and he was quite outspoken about the fact that whether it was, you know, Ron DeSantis or Mike Pence or Nikki Haley or, you know, he would say, you know, I've got a different style than all of them. And I do present myself in a different way than they do. And he hasn't really ruled out pursuing a career in Washington in the future. But as you know, having been through enough of these presidential primaries, ask Bob Smith how easy it is to be a New Hampshire political figure and run for president. Right. It's it's. It's a real balancing act. And the first, because obviously the first attack that will come at you is you're basically weakening the primary by running for president, right? Because as a favorite son, you know, you're obviously going to win the first of the nation primary and it's not going to be competitive and you're not going to have the same, you know, level of interest and enthusiasm for the role we play every four years if you're a candidate. So he certainly would confront that and have to deal with. But but it, it it wouldn't surprise me in the future for him to seek a national role, whatever that would be. I could. He is, you know, as certainly we saw with all of this speculation, he is someone who's much more comfortable managing than he is speechifying. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, that's not only is that not his strong suit, he's just doesn't have a whole lot of interest in doing that, you know? Right. So I could easily see him, for example, joining a cabinet of a Republican president or even sure. a moderate yeah. Democrat president yeah. for that matter. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. um, like Judd Gregg considered at one point, remember being, you know, Barack Obama's commerce yep. secretary. So I, I, I mean, remember. I could see that, Yep. you know, I could see that with <clears throat> Chris Sununu and he'd be comfortable hey, doing that. You know, as a, as a former uh, congressman and candidate, I can tell you when when that when that new year hits uh, in an election year, all of a sudden 
everything takes on heightened importance and you start looking ahead and the, the days to November's elections become very, very short. So um, let's just turn to, to 2022. Now, I, I know that, um, and I think it's fair to say the coronavirus pandemic is going to continue to loom over the New Hampshire legislature, in it, affecting both what the lawmakers debate and where they debate it and uh, the politics of covid um, have been certainly dominant um, in 2021. We we saw, and I'll conflate these issues, sort of the, the politics of COVID affecting both uh, the legislature in terms of um, conflict over where to meet, how to meet, what security measures to take, what was safe, what wasn't safe. And in the executive council, uh, there were first uh, votes to reject um, federal contracts related to COVID vaccination efforts. And then through the efforts of Councillor Cindy Warmington, that was overturned and the state accepted the money. Um, uh, but it was sort of a, uh, and it, it, the reason I conflated is it, it's kind of, it was dysfunctional all over the state government when it came to COVID. Um, I guess it was just, it was, it was, it was a real, it was a tough slog. And when we look at um, uh, the reconvening of the legislature, uh, the 400 member house is going to be meeting at a hotel expo center in Manchester. The 24 member Senate is going to spread itself out in representatives hall to allow for social distancing. Some people will be wearing masks. Not everybody is vaccinated. And right now, I mean, if you look at some of the bills that have been filed and, and there are something like 900 new bills up for consideration, uh, vaccine is the focus of nearly 30 bills, some of which cancel each other out. I mean, for example, the Democrat Democrats, there's a Democratic bill that would require COVID-19 vaccinations for students in K through 12 and colleges, while a Republican bill specifically prohibits school districts from mandating a vaccine. There's another bill that prohibits public colleges and universities from requiring vaccinations or face masks. So what's 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 a poor what's a poor member of the public to think about what's going on in our state legislature? How does this all shake itself out in 2022? Yeah, it should be interesting. And of course, as, <laughs> and as you know, I mean, we have the Republicans are in control of legislature, but particularly in the House, it's it's the smallest majority that either party's had since World War Two. So um, and you have a, the hyper partisanship you always see in an election year session. That's it, they're always more partisan and more polarized, more political. And um, I fully expect that to continue. Um, and um, and. And as we've talked about with Governor Sununu seeking a fourth term, um, he becomes even more engaged and more interested in making sure, by the way, that this legislature and its leadership don't go too far to the right and make it even not only harder for him to win reelection, but also harder for Republicans to keep control of the majority in both parties. I mean, it is. And that's what's that's what will be interesting to watch with this dance, frankly, because 
when the assumption was that Chris Sununu was going to run for the Senate, and we certainly saw this with Maggie Hassan in 2016 when, when she first uh, announced, hey, I'm going to challenge Kelly A. Ott and run for the Senate, um, inevitably that governor's attention is drawn away from the state house, right? And then the legislative leaders have even more power in that election year to kind of dictate the pace and the flow of what will or won't occur. Well, that's not the case now. I mean, you have a very engaged governor, like we talked about, right in the middle of the um, trying to manage this pandemic. I think he's going to be even more engaged than he was um, in 2021, trying to um, prevent some of these um, anti-vaccine bills, for example, getting to him in the first place, because he'd rather not have to veto them, but he will if he has to. So um, I think uh, I think we'll see him even more uh, trying to, um, you know, uh, prevent the Republican caucus in the legislature from doing damage to him and them politically. And, you, and of course, the Democrats are only all too happy to have all of those debates and all that legislation talked about, because in their view, uh, much as we saw. Um, in 2010, after Bill O'Brien um, and the Tea Party won this supermajority, I mean, only two years later, they were out of office because, yeah. you know, they had they governed too far outside the mainstream of right. where New Hampshire was. And yeah. and Chris Sununu is going to be real concerned about that. Well, and, you know, in 2021, we saw sort of the far right wing of um, the Republican caucus and its adherents um, not being particularly kind to the governor. I mean, there were uh, the politics of COVID uh, put protesters outside his home. Um, uh, there were anti-mask, anti-vaccine uh, protests when, when Republican leaders were speaking to crowds. Um, I mean, so the the politic, the crazy politics of COVID um, kind of uh, exacerbated some of the real challenges for governing for a governor who wants people to see him as a moderating force, I think. I think that's one of the one of one of his uh, advantages, so to speak, in New Hampshire is that he has an Ashuk's personality which allows yeah. people to yeah. accept him as, okay, he's not a firebrand. He's not one of these crazy right wingers. Uh, we can, we can, we can live with him. Uh, of course, if you look at his policies from democratic point of view, people would say, wait a second, this, this guy is no moderate. He is, um, he All signed, right. he signed a budget into law, which bans abortions. And we're about to have an abortion ban go into effect in New Hampshire. Um, this is, that's kind of, that's a historic turnaround that, that may spell, it may spell trouble for Republicans if Democrats can galvanize women who often are the majority of voters in an election around this historic prohibition, uh, which really cuts against the, the grain of uh, traditional New Hampshire approach to social issues, which to characterize it one way is, 
is has been kind of a a libertarian approach of you know um what individuals uh, have choice to to do what they want to do we're not going to put government in the way of of what individuals want and and in a way that has been um, a basis for moderate Republicans historically in New Hampshire to take pro-choice positions. The governor has called himself a pro-choice governor, but he signed into law a budget with an abortion ban. And the Democrats um, see that, I believe, as a real wedge to drive into uh, the heart of the Republican efforts uh, at re-election and um, I think that may be an important issue. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, um, that um, it certainly opens a window of opportunity for Democrats that, frankly, I don't think they thought was going to be there if Kristen Inouye was going to run again. But with this abortion ban, and we certainly saw, we've seen in the last several weeks, um, you know, the progressive groups spent a lot of money on television advertising this abortion ban, attacking the governor over it, and it clearly had an impact on his approval rating uh, in a negative way. And um, uh, I do think that, um, I do think that um, in, in some respects, um, I know the governor's folks feel as if what happened with the COVID vaccine money um, Republicans on the council and the fiscal committee rejecting it. And all of that became a national story. As you know, we were the only state in the country where that happened. And, and I, and I do know both he and many of those around them feel as if, you know, this was actually a nice kind of shakedown cruise for this very conservative wing of my party to basically tell them, alert them to the fact that, you know, you can go too far. And if you go too far, you can, you know, you can um, politic yourself out of <laughs> the majority, you know. Right. And yep. and for them and and as far as he's concerned, he feels I think he feels as if it's a darn good thing this happened in July, August, September of 2021 instead of July, August, September of 2022. Right. Yep. When the voters are paying a whole lot more attention than they were back then. So, um, and I've certainly detected since the fall among, particularly among the House Republican leadership, uh, much more of a desire to uh, work in concert with this governor on uh, what our priorities should be. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if, um, if, Speaker Sherman Packard can maintain that discipline in his own group, because as you know, and this is the, this is the craziness of COVID in politics today. Okay. Which is so many of these legislators in both parties, frankly, have not really had the usual communication with their leadership than, that you have, you know, mm. as a former congressman, you know what I speak, you know, sure. they, in yeah. other words, there's nothing like face-to-face communication right. in politics to create, you know, order, discipline, uh, predictability, you know. Uh, and if you don't have that, then 
it increases the likelihood that you're going to be in for a surprise outcome. Right. You know, yeah. something's going to happen that didn't you didn't expect would happen. Um, yeah. E so, email um, and Zoom. Email and Zoom are no substitute for face-to-face, in-person meetings, whether it's of a caucus or with leadership. You're absolutely yeah. right about that. Exactly. Right. And so, and that's sort of what. Again, that's another thing about this winter surge that has particularly the leadership and the legislature even more on edge now because they thought by now we wouldn't be back to normal, but rather um, we'd be in person in the House chamber, for example, by now, and which would make it a whole lot easier for them to get done what they want to get done, how they want to get it done. You know, but we're not there yet and we're not going to be there yet anytime soon. Um, the nice thing about the kind of rhythm of the legislature here is that, um, uh, particularly the house and Senate, when it comes to meeting in sessions, they'll meet this week in order to take care of some of the leftover bills in, in which, which are, by the way, large in numbers, almost 225 of them. That's, that's almost 50% more than you usually have, right. but thanks to COVID, there was a whole lot of unfinished business. You just couldn't get it all done in 2021. But once they finish with that, they're really not going to have to meet in session for at least a month or, or so, either the House or the Senate. So that will, you know, I think, give them some breathing space and hope hope that um, COVID calms down to a, to a degree that they may be able to return to the State House. We'll see. I'm, I'm not all that optimistic that yeah even by the middle of February, that this thing is going to be in the rearview mirror. But um, uh, but at least they'll have some time after this week to, um, to figure out how, how they go forward. So around the country, there have been um, real efforts in Republican legislatures all over to restrict access to voting. Voting and voting rights have become a huge issue. They're a big issue in Washington. Um, people expect Democrats to really turn their attention on voting rights um, now in D.C., perhaps even reforming the Senate filibuster in order to pass something on voting rights to deal with it. Secretary of State Bill Gardner has attacked uh, our Democratic uh, U.S. senators um, claiming that they are undermining uh, the New Hampshire New Hampshire voting by supporting national efforts on voting rights and and in our legislature there are a number of things um, uh, that have now been filed about voting, including. Uh, a bill from Republicans to require a forensic audit of the 2020 election results. And we saw that that clown show in Arizona about forensic audits of the election results. There was a separate bill to right. require a forensic audit of the Merrimack County uh, results. So you've got that. There's a bill to uh, uh, dealing once again with residency and domicile for the purpose of voting, trying to narrow down who can vote by um, a bill that I, yeah, I think the language was uh, claiming permanent residency and domicile to really try to keep college students um, from voting. Uh, and, and then at the same time, 
Um, uh, and, and of course, these these come after the New Hampshire Supreme Court struck down a voting law as unconstitutional. But what really caught my eye and, and was a bipartisan bill. Um, and here, you know, this comes in 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 the in light of the efforts at redistricting. Uh, there's an effort to change the shape of the congressional districts to make District One uh, basically a lock for Republicans, um, and efforts at independent commissions for redistricting have been rejected. But what caught my eye was this bipartisan bill to establish ranked choice voting for state party primary elections and municipal elections. Um, and I, when, I, when, I, when I looked at it in, in preparation for today's chat, Kevin, I thought, okay, this has got to be um, a, progressive, a progressive bill uh, from, from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party um, emulating what uh, has been working pretty well in Maine and other places for ranked choice voting. But I was really surprised to see that it was bipartisan. And of course, ranked choice voting would make a is, is a is a big change. It's a it's it's I, I think ranked choice vote, the, the suggestion of ranked choice voting um, is as big a change in New, in New Hampshire's voting as we've ever seen. Yeah, no question it would be. Yeah. I, um, and I wouldn't imagine um, Secretary of State Bill Gardner be a big fan of that. Um, uh, um, Governor Christensen has been critical of the concept in the past. He really hasn't been confronted with it uh, very much. But um, there's been a committee, a bipartisan group of activists working on this issue for over a year now uh, on ranked choice voting. They had meetings throughout the summer and fall putting this legislation together. It's certainly going to get a serious look. I mean, the other the other big debate about voting going forward is going to be about absentee ballots, right? Because as you know, with COVID, we had, what, almost a third of our electorate in 2020 voted by absentee because of the provisions we made for them, allowing no excuse needed to get an absentee ballot. And, and that became very popular. And people really like that. And there's going to be a real debate. I think, um, again, this governor's not fond of the idea. He wants to go back to the way it was. But I think there's going to be a lot of debate about whether we should continue to make it easier, not harder, to get an absentee ballot, especially um, not just with the pandemic, just especially with people's lives being as busy as they are. And um, and sometimes it being hard to get to the polls um, um, on time. So um, I think that's that's going to be seriously debated, too. And, you know, for for whatever reason, um, our secretary of state, the longest serving secretary of state in the history of humankind, Bill Gardner, <laughs> has 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 been, let's just say, really slow to embrace um, any changes in the um, in the way we vote in New Hampshire. Now, I, I you know, right. we, one, we, one thing that's interesting, too, is one thing we've seen, too, um, just 
you recall he had a really serious challenge from Colin Van Austin, not for this term he's in now, but for the previous term. Right. Um, narrowly right, right. held on to the job. I think, I think what we've seen since that really close election is a couple of things. One, he's become even more outspoken than he was before. Right. Uh, um, about things, what he likes and doesn't like. And two, we've seen legislative leaders, frankly, in both parties, willing to push back against this secretary of state to essentially say, you know what, um, we make the policy. You don't. You administer the elections, right? So, and we saw it just this past year where essentially um, uh, with the forensic audit in Wyndham, he did not want that to go on. He was dead set against that. And the Republican legislature rolled him on it, basically. And and even rolled Governor Chris Sununu's opposition to the idea initially until they came up with a process that he was willing to accept. But um, so we saw that. Then just this past summer, I've been attending hearings on, again, some of these leftover bills and study issues. And there's a lot of support among Republicans in the legislature for what are what essentially would be random audits after an election, which is to say, after an election, uh, the state would then select randomly, not not by not politically, but take a random slice of a number of precincts all over the state where you then would um, audit those ballots and ensure that um, votes were cast properly and there weren't problems with the machines and and the votes were accurate. And as I say, I, I know, um, you know, Bill Gardner 1.0 was dead set against this idea, did not like the idea of any random audits. And he's kind of come around to the notion that, yeah, we can do that. We can, because they now have digital technology that's really high speed so that you could actually do the a digital forensic random audit uh, and still certify all the results and the recounts in time uh, to meet our calendar because that's always been his resistance to these audits is how do you have an right. I'm trying to do 30 recounts all over the state and I've got to get them done within uh, in less than a week after the election. Uh, so, um, but you could do these random audits and still accommodate that. But that's just one, ex- a couple of examples, I should say, where um, Bill Gardner is still, trust me, an incredibly powerful force in New Hampshire. But he's not omnipotent. He's not, and um, and we're seeing in both parties a, a willingness to kind of flex the legislative muscle they have on these issues yeah yep well kevin we're gonna leave it there this is capital close-up i'm your host paul hodes thanks so much for joining us we're gonna have you back throughout the year to talk about the important issues that people in new hampshire care about and there there are there are so many issues it's it's hard always hard to know what to choose there's going to be a lot going on in our great state uh, in 2022. So thanks so much for joining us, folks. We're looking forward to a great year ahead. We'll be back next week with more Capital Close-Up.